So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 5 through 10. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. And the title of this sermon today is God is Light, Not a Liar. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. Well, calling someone a liar is one of the more serious offenses that you could commit. Um, Insult my choice of clothing, my way of doing things, okay. But to call me a liar is to call into question my character. When you call someone a liar, it's serious. But that is simply on a human level. What about calling God a liar? I assume that none of us want to do that. Well, in today's text, we're going to see that many of us unwittingly do exactly that, and we'll see how to avoid it. So with that in mind, let's dive into the text. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Our outline for this text is pretty straightforward and flows logically within the verses themselves. Point one is God is holy, verse five. Point two is God's people are called to be holy. We see that in verses six and seven. And then point three, holiness involves confession of sin. And we see that in verses eight through 10. So let's begin with point one. God is holy. Look with me at verse five. John starts, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Before we get to the meat of this verse, I want us to notice a couple of important details. First, this word message. It's the word angelia, which means message or news. Uh, The word that we translate gospel or good news is the word euangelia. So you can hear the overlap there. And I want us to keep that in mind. This message is news. This message is news. Second, what's the source of this news? Where did John and the apostles hear this news? He says, from him, from God. Unlike the false teachers that John's refuting, John's message isn't speculation or a new philosophy or even John's own idea. It's from 
him. To disregard this message is to disregard God himself. Third, what do they do with this news from God? They proclaim it. An angelo. And can I tell you how great this word is? It means to announce or tell or report or declare. It means to herald important news and was sometimes used for the declaration of a king. David Allen comments that the king's herald would walk the streets of the city announcing the king's message. All the subjects of the kingdom were intently interested in the word of the king. When your television show is interrupted by the network with an important news bulletin, what do you do? Do you get up, go to the kitchen, or get a snack and leisurely return later? No. You intently listen to what is being said because the news might affect you personally. Heralding important news. Before we move any further, I just want to ask us the question. Is this how you understand proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? You have the greatest news in the entire universe. And you get to be the one going in front of the king, heralding this important news. So often, for me anyway, I think of evangelism as having to persuade or or to convince someone. Having to get into an intellectual argument of some sort. And yes, 1 Peter 3.15 does call us to be ready to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yes, and amen to that. But gospel proclamation is heralding news. It's not a debate. It's a declaration. Christians, that's what we're called to be faithful in. Evangelism, and hear this loud and clear, evangelism isn't the results of evangelism. Do you understand that? If, if you as the messenger have been faithful in accurately sharing the message of the king, the king is pleased. People can choose whether or not to believe the message that you're delivering, but that part's out of your hands. God is the one who does that. Here's what I'm trying to get at. There are only two ways that you can fail at gospel proclamation. Either sharing the wrong message or not sharing at all. There's the only two ways that you can fail at gospel proclamation. Christian, you have the greatest news in the world. And you're delivering it for the king. What a joy and an honor. So let's keep going. This news from God that's heralded. What is it? Look at the text again. Verse 5. God is light. God is light. Well, what is God? Our church's statement of faith The New Hampshire of 1853 answers that question in this way. What is God? We believe that there is one and only one living in true God, an infinite, intelligent spirit whose name is Jehovah. 
the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love, that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. While all of that is true, John's a bit more concise, isn't he? And straight to the point. What is God? God is light. Now, there's several possibilities for what it means for God to be light. So let's ask the question, in what sense is God light? One commentator notes that light enables vision, produces growth, reveals beauty, exposes blemishes, guides travelers, and warms the earth. If we had more time, I'd walk you through several passages dealing with different aspects of God being light. But what I believe is being said here in 1 John is something very, very specific. I believe John is referencing God's moral perfection, his holiness. And to make his point doubly clear, John tells us the same exact thing, but in an opposite way. He says, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. None. Job chapter 18 verses 5 through 6 says, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. So it's a statement of light being morality or holiness. Similarly, Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. God is light. He's holy, morally perfect in every way, with no imperfections, no shadow side, no darkness at all. That's why John says in his gospel, in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God is light. He's perfectly morally pure. He's holy. This truth is foundational to everything that comes next in our text. So God is holy. Point two, God's people are called to be holy. Following John's opening statement that God is light, he then proceeds to give three if we say statements. Each time following those negative statements with a positive one. And so it looks something a bit like this. I've got this chart up on the screen for you. So he'll, he'll say a negative thing. If we say this, and then he'll follow that with a positive statement of what it looks like um, to overcome that. In other words, he's giving it a negative statement or some kind of false belief, followed by a positive and alternative outcome or correction. And this carries over to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, by the way. So, uh, let's look at his first, if we say, statement. And to be clear here, 
the we here is a literary device that includes his audience and us. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Remember, God is light. He's holy. John is saying, if we claim to have fellowship with a holy God while we walk in darkness, it's bogus. If trees could talk, it'd be like an apple tree constantly producing rotten apples on its limbs and then repetitively telling you, I'm a healthy orange tree. I'm an orange tree. I'm an orange tree. I'm an orange tree. The fruit must match the root. We, as God's people, are called to be holy. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I am holy. Peter repeats this call in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. He says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Our conduct needs to match our confession. If we claim to have fellowship with God, we can't walk in darkness. Now, what he's not saying is that Christians will have sinless perfection. We'll get to that here in a little bit. This word walk, to walk in darkness, this word walk means a lifestyle or one's way of life. We're not talking about individual acts of sin. John is saying, if you claim to be a Christian, but your lifestyle is characterized by sin, you're lying about your fellowship with God. You don't practice the truth. And I love that word practice. Uh, think about, uh, we use language like this, a doctor practicing medicine. Practice means that it's your manner of life. It's what you do. In other words, a lifestyle of unrepentant sin is evidence that you're not converted. The fruit of your life reveals the root of your belief, and the fruit is rotten. God's people are to be as distinguishable from the world as light is from darkness. So look at your life. Is there a difference between you and the world? So that's the first false belief. The belief that you can have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. But look at John's positive response to that in verse 7. He says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Isn't this interesting? John says, if we walk in the light, in other words, if we have a lifestyle of holiness as God is holy, what do we expect him to say next after that? Because of verse 6, I expected him to say, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. And while that's true, that's not what he says, is it? He says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. 
one another. What's up with that? I think it's twofold. Number one, when you have unrepentant sin in your life, when you walk in darkness, fellowship with the body of Christ is hard. You bring sin into all of the relationships that you have. This is one of the reasons, there are others, but this is one of the reasons Paul says what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, sin will spread like leaven in dough when it's allowed to sit unchecked in a church. So John seems to be saying in one sense, when you walk in the light, you have fellowship, participation, partnership, deep communion with one another. But in another sense, I think what John's saying is that fellowship with one another is part of walking in the light. One commentator simply says it this way, true holiness unites us with fellow believers. True holiness unites us with fellow believers. Why would John be stressing this? I want us to think back to the occasion of the letter that we talked about last week. The Gnostics, or the false teachers, they claimed this secret high level of spirituality, and what did they do? They separated from the church. Unfortunately, this isn't just a Gnostic problem. This is alive and well today. I know lots of people who may not say it this way, but the attitude is, I'm so spiritual that I don't need the church. Just me and Jesus. John says, no. Part of walking in the light is fellowship with believers in the church, which includes fellowship with God, as we learned in verse 3. True holiness unites us with other believers. And there's another incredible truth that John teaches here as well. Look again at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. First of all, what is the blood of Jesus? We talk about it, we even sang about it this morning, but I just want to make sure we understand what that means when we say the blood of Jesus. When we speak of, when, when Scripture speaks of the blood of Jesus, we're talking about the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Jesus came to the earth and lived a perfect life in every single way. And in that, he, he's rightly described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what, what does a perfect lamb have to do with the blood of Jesus? everything. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Exodus 12, 1 through 7. This is talking about the Passover. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, 
a male a year old. You, shall, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7, this is key. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Later, in verse 12, it continues on. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood of the perfect lamb covered them, and it saved them from certain death. The perfect lamb died instead of them. Further, in the Old Testament, we read of the sacrificial system, where Leviticus lists out sin after sin after sin after sin, and the specific animals that have to be killed and offered to make someone clean for that sin. Again, each time, It was something dying instead of the human dying, which is the just punishment for sinning against God. That's what we mean when we say the blood of Jesus. We mean his sacrificial substitute death in our place. He died on the cross in our place for our sin. So look back at 1 John verse 7. The blood of Jesus... His Son cleanses us from all sin. Jesus' atoning work on our behalf as our perfect sacrificial lamb who died in our place, it cleanses us from all sin. Notice, it doesn't say religion or ritual or ceremony plus the blood of Jesus. No, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And look what this blood does. First, and this is such great news, this word cleanses, to to, to purify or make clean, it's in the present tense. Why, Why is that so important and such great news for us? Because we tend to think of Jesus' blood taking away our sins in the moment of conversion, which is true. But what John's saying here is that the blood of Jesus has ongoing and present effects. Did you sin yesterday? This morning? Ten seconds ago? Right now in real time? His blood cleanses you. Present tense. And look look at which sins it cleanses you from. All sin! All sin! Does, Does John mean the sin of lying? Of stealing? of lust, of gossip, of pride? Does he mean the sin of coveting, or anger, or being judgmental, of slander, of adultery, of even murder? Yes, he does. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I want to be clear here. This this isn't based on your good performance of walking in the light. What John is saying is that if you walk in the light, 
You're showing yourself to be among those who are cleansed. You can know it. The other option is walking in darkness. We can walk in the light, or we can walk in darkness. Walking in darkness is dangerous. It may seem fun in the moment, but you'll end up hurt. I know this well. I remember one time when I was probably a fifth or sixth grader, we were at a church lock-in. If you don't know what a church lock-in is, it's where all of the youth come to the church, eat pizza, and play games all night long. Well, this particular night, we were playing hide-and-seek, and all of the lights were off in the entire church. In this, there was this basement, there was this long hall, and at one point, I'm sprinting down this hall to try to get away from another kid who's chasing me right behind me. On the other end of the hall was another kid sprinting in the opposite direction, trying to escape another captor. We weren't walking in darkness. We were sprinting. You probably already guessed it. We ran full speed into one another. Walking in the dark is dangerous. I want us to understand this. Walking in the light is the best way to live on this earth. It's not that God's just trying to keep fun things from us. Walking in the light is the best way to live on this earth. It's for our good and flourishing as humans. So, How do we walk in the light? Psalm 119, verse 105. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We walk in the light by allowing God's word to show us the way and taking step after step after step wherever it leads us. God is holy. God's people are called to be holy. Point three, holiness involves confession of sin. Holiness involves confession of sin. Look with me at verse eight, uh, our second if we say statement. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. How prevalent is this today? Most of our society believes that they have no sin. Either they deny the category altogether and say sin isn't a real thing, or they use psychological language to cover it up. It isn't sin, it's just a mistake, a mess up. Others simply say that what the Bible clearly calls sin isn't. Still others, even in the church self-righteously claim that they're just that good and have no sin. Again, John is saying this is bogus. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. That's true. But why do we tend to do this? Why do we tend to to downplay or reject that we have sin in our own lives? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was actually a medical doctor before becoming a pastor, he was really good at diagnosing the human condition. 
He said this. He said, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner. Because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. And, and we can always put up a good cause for ourselves. We're sin sick. And part of that sickness, what he's saying, is that it makes us feel healthy. Anyone who claims to be without sin, John says, is self-deceived. In addition, to claim to be without sin, I would say spits in the face of Christ himself. If, if you're without sin, you don't need his atoning sacrifice. You're good enough without him. And I love what Dane Ortland, in his newest book titled Deeper, says about this. He says, to the degree that we minimize the evil within, we lower the ceiling on how deeply we can grow. We take a painkiller and go to sleep when we think we have a headache. We undergo chemotherapy when we know we have a brain tumor. If we think we're without sin, we don't think we need Christ, do we? We think we're good with some church attendance and good deeds. Friends, that simply isn't true. None of us are without sin. We need the blood of Christ. Now, following John's pattern of negative statement, positive solution, what's the alternative option to claiming sinlessness? Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can either cover up our sins or confess them. Well, what's confession? Confession. Well, the word translated confess is the word homo logeo. It comes from two Greek words, actually. Homo, meaning same, and logos, meaning word. The same word. The same word. It means agreeing with God. Saying the same word as he does about your sin. And look at this glorious result when we actually do that. Each of these words are rich. Look at the first two words here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Faithful and just. What does John mean by that? First, he's faithful to keep his promises, God is. Jeremiah 31, 34, as part of the promise of the new covenant, God says this, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. When we confess our sins, God is faithful to that promise. And he's also just, meaning completely righteous. We've talked about this before, but for God to be just, for him to be righteous, for him to be good, he must punish sin. He, he can't just look the other way and act like sin wasn't committed. Someone must pay for the offense. And that someone was Jesus. 
He died in our place to pay the just debt that we owe. So not only is God faithful to his promise, he's just. And look at these next two words. He forgives and cleanses. Forgives and cleanses. David Allen gives this wonderful illustration here. He says, picture this, picture this Sunday morning scene. A mother says to her little boy, many of us might not have to picture this, maybe it's happened before. The mother says to her little boy, we're getting ready to go to church, so do not go out and play because it rained last night and the ground is muddy. But the little boy slips outside when his mom's back is turned to get a little playtime in before they go to church. He slips and falls in a mud puddle while wearing his Sunday best and gets mud all over him. He comes into the house crying and says, Mom, I'm sorry. I fell and I got mud all over my clothes. I'm sorry. At that point, what does the mother say? She says, I forgive you. That takes care of his guilt. Her child is still her son. But then, what does his mother do after that? Does she send him to church wearing the stained clothes? No. She cleans him up and changes his clothes. That is what God is saying to you. God will take care of your guilt and God will take care of your stain. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What great news for those who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ. You're forgiven and cleansed. All your guilt and stains are gone. You can cover up your sin or you can confess it. And very quickly, I just want to try to get as specific as possible in application. Is, is this telling us that we, we only need to confess our sins to God? Or should we be confessing sins to others? Well, the Bible teaches both. We should confess to God first. But James 5.16 says that we should confess our sins to one another. So, does that mean I should confess my sins to everyone? No, that's not what I'm saying. That could get awkward and really unhelpful. There, there are some people that may not be safe to confess sin to. May not be spiritually mature enough to, to receive your confession. Again, the words of Dane Ortland here are helpful. He says, what we're looking for isn't exhaustive vulnerability but redemptive vulnerability. So find a friend that you can trust, who you can really be open with, who's spiritually mature enough, who, who will speak the good news of the gospel into your life. Confess sin together. As this text tells us, that act leads to true fellowship with one another. So this is my challenge to you here. Find one person, find one person in this church that you can do this with. Start practicing this together and walk in the light. Finally, 
in verse 10. Come to our third if we say statement. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, you might be thinking, didn't he already say this? Yes and no. While this is similar to verse 8, it's also different. What John seems to be describing in verse 8 is someone who claims to be sinless in the present. There have actually been those throughout church history who have taught this view called sinless perfectionism, or the view that once you become a Christian, once you're converted, you no longer sin. In other words, I was a sinner, but now I don't sin at all. That's more what seems to be in view in verse 8. But here, John seems to be dealing with the person who says, I've never sinned. No sin now, no sin nature, ever. And look at what John says about such a person. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, meaning God, a liar. And his word is not in us. We might expect John to, to write, if we say we have not sinned, we make ourselves a liar. But he says, when you claim to be sinless, you're calling God a liar. Why would John say that? Well, because God's word is clear. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46 states, For there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 14, verses 2 through 3, says the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see where they are, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Paul picks all of this up in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. A couple verses later, Romans 3, 23, God's word says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To claim sinless perfection is to call God a liar and to reject the clear teaching of his word. This is the opposite of confession, or saying the same word as God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to consider this. Maybe your view of Christians is that they all think they're perfect and better than everyone else. Maybe you've actually met some Christians like this. Unfortunately, I have. But this isn't Christianity. The Bible is so abundantly clear that all of us sin. Because of Adam's sin in the garden, when, when he rebelled against God, we all have inherited Adam's sin nature and actual sin guilt. Because we are sinners, we sin. But the great news here is that Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He came so that sinners like you and me could be saved from certain death. 
If you've encountered self-righteous Christians who pretend to be sinless, I'm sorry. And I encourage you not to make your decisions about Christ based on them. Second, I would encourage you to search your own heart. Consider if there's sin in your life. And I want to walk you through the ABCs of what it means to be saved from your sin. We all learned this in vacation Bible school growing up. What are the ABCs of what it means to be saved from your sin, past, present, and future? And to be clear, this is not the gospel, but they are the only proper responses to the gospel. A, admit that you're a sinner. Don't call God and his word false. Admit that you're a sinner. B, believe in Jesus Christ. Trust that his blood, not your good works or anything else, cleanses you from all sin, as this text says. So admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus Christ. And see, confess your sin and confess him as Lord. Agree with God concerning the truth of your sin. Agree with God that Jesus is Lord. Ask him to forgive you because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. Repent or turn from your sin. In its most simple form, that's what it means to become a Christian. Admit, believe, and confess. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 11 says this. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the truth that we proclaim to you this morning. If you would like to place your faith in Christ, now I'd love to talk with you after the service. I'm going to be standing right up here. I would love nothing more than to talk to you through what those ABCs look like. So come talk to me. I would love that. If you're here and you are a Christian already, if you're here and you are a Christian, I hope that this text, and the rest of the Bible for that matter, lead you to humility. I hope that it leads you to, alongside Paul himself, say, I'm the chief of sinners. God is light. He's completely holy. Walk in the light, knowing that you're forgiven and cleansed by Jesus' blood. What a gift. Third, Confess your sin. Don't make God a liar. As Paul says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Romans 3, 4. Then I want to encourage you to rest in the truth that your confession is in great hands. Hands of the Lord who love you and care for you. Let's pray.